0: The scripture reading this evening is taken from Isaiah, Isaiah 31, 1 through 3. Isaiah 31, 1 through 3. The caption right above this says, the folly of not trusting God. <clears throat> Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. Yet he also is wise and will bring disaster and will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of those who work iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God. And the horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, both he who helps will fall, and he who is helped will fall down. They will all perish together.
1: I have wanted to do a lesson like this for some time, and uh, it's just been a matter of getting the slides together, especially because... I can talk all evening and I don't think that a lesson like this would really make a whole lot of sense if it was that you didn't have a visual in order to do that. So. Again, I've tried done my best to try and order the slides and get them all together for you, and hopefully it'll be something that's uh, encouraging. I would encourage you that if you don't have a good idea of some of the geographic features of the land of Israel, or even maybe where Israel is, I would encourage you to get a, a blank sheet of paper, maybe a little scrap sheet of paper, or something like uh, the do that happens at the back of your Bible sometimes. Uh, just find a little sheet of paper that you can write on or something like that, because again, we need to understand, I believe, something of the area and the uh, narrative about where the Bible story takes place. And that's really where our aim is this evening and asking this question. Out of all the places that God could have chosen all over the world, you think about the most beautiful place that you could possibly imagine. And the question that comes back to my mind is, why did God choose Israel or why did God choose the land of Palestine for his people, Israel, in order to live? Out of everywhere that God could have led his people to, out of all the places that he could have borne his people and taken them uh, by a mighty hand out of Egypt if it was, why did he choose Israel? Why did he choose Palestine? It's certainly got a number of names. It's got the land of Palestine, the land of Israel, and certain scriptures uh, it's known as the Holy Land. There's a lot of different uh, names for it, land of Canaan. But my question this evening that I want us to entertain is, why did God choose this specific land for his people? And I believe the answer is found in the title of this lesson because God knew that it would be a testing ground for their faith, that God knew that there was lessons that the people would need to learn about trust and about uh, commitment and about uh, really resting on and leaning on God for their sustenance and for their survival, which we'll talk about here in just a moment. In case this is your first lesson, in case you've never really thought about where Israel is, we're going to start as broad as we possibly can. Here is a map of the world. The Bible narrative itself takes place on three continents. The continent of Africa, down in the land of Egypt. It takes place in the continent of Asia, that is, in Israel and Palestine, and then on into the Fertile Crescent. And it also takes place on the continent of Europe as Paul goes throughout his missionary journeys up into Rome and Spain and and several other places. If we take just this simple map and this uh, black box that you see before you, and we zoom in just a little bit more, if you'll notice that God chose the land of Palestine, which is just simply a 150-mile from north to south strip of land. It's about 75 miles east to west from the uh, from the bank of the Mediterranean Sea there on the west all the way over to where the eastern desert kind of begins that's where God chose. We take this and we look just generally so that we can get a little bit of context at what nations now occupy this area. And you have some like uh Israel right there in the middle. Uh down to the south you have the West Bank, you have the nation of Jordan which you know is 95% desert, I believe. You've got to the north, Lebanon and Syria and Iraq, Saudi Arabia, on over here, Iran, but Egypt down to the south, which has remained largely unchanged. This is a volatile area. This is an area that's had many, many wars and is still continuing to struggle and have difficulties. Why did God choose this little strip of land above all others for his people to dwell? Because God knew that it would be a testing ground of Faith. Four aspects about that this evening for us to chew on, to consider about the land of Israel for God's people. Number one, God purposed the land of Canaan, the land, I say land of Canaan, land of Israel, uh, however you want to refer to it, the Holy Land, uh, the land of Palestine, all those refer to the same thing. He chose it because he knew that it would be a place of contact. It would be a place of contact. Zooming out just for a moment, and looking at this contact, Israel sits there in the white box, again, 150 miles from north to south. You'll find the familiar pattern of the Sea of Galilee that starts up here in the north and then a long stream, which is the Jordan River, down here to the, uh, to the uh, Dead Sea, down in the south. If you'll note, to the east, all that kind of tannish is all desert. Everything down here is the Nile Delta, and this is the Nile River. You can tell because the nation of uh, Egypt is about 90% desert. The only fertile area is right there along the banks of the Nile River. Egypt affords luxuries that they can't necessarily get up here in the northern part of the world. If you'll look at these two major world powers, you're going to find Egypt to the south and Aram, or the land of Aram, to the north. Note that this area up here doesn't have a lot of natural boundaries. It doesn't have a lot of protection. And so you're going to find a number of different names for this area up here going throughout history. You'll find that it's the land of Mesopotamia. You'll find it's the Babylonian kingdom. You'll find it's the Grecian kingdom. You'll find that in some context it's, it's uh, part of the Syrians or the Assyrians or the um, or the uh, Sumerians. There's a number of different names that this area takes based upon who conquers it, okay? And so as you read through your Bible and you read about the Assyrians and Syrians, all of them made their home up here in what we now know as Turkey and uh, up into uh, Mesopotamia. Note that Egypt has remained largely unchanged, particularly because if you'll note, all of this over here is desert, the Sahara. All of this over here is uh, the Arabian Desert, the Eastern Desert, as it's called in the Bible, and you'll find that there's not a whole lot of linkage between Aram to the north and Egypt to the south. If you're going to lead a conquering army, you're not going to lead them from here over here in the Babylonian area all the way across the eastern desert on into Egypt. Why not? Because we don't have cars. We don't have uh, means for preserving food. We don't have water sources. And so what they would do is they would follow this, as known as the Fertile Crescent, And they would follow this down through the land bridge, which had several different trade routes that went from Egypt to Aram and from Aram to Egypt. As you look at this, Israel is placed right in the middle of these two major world powers. God purposed Israel, God purposed the land of Canaan for his people Because he knew it would be a test for them, a testing ground for their faith, to ask the question, who are you going to trust in? The Syrians up here in the north are saber-rattling. Israel, they're coming for Egypt, ultimately. But in order to get to Egypt, they've got to get through you first. You think about wars. You think about the rumors of war. You think about how war is going to come to your doorstep and how an army is going to march through your fields and through your land. Who are you going to trust in? Here's the issue. They could go down to Egypt and say, Egyptians, we know you've got a lot of horses. We know you've got a lot of chariots, as Jim read just for us a few moments ago. We would like to make an alliance with you down to the south so that you can help us fight the north. And opposite sometimes, they would go up to the north, to the Syrians, to the Assyrians, to the Babylonians, in order to try and make a pact with them to fight off the evil Egyptians. But note that God, in several different passages, speaking with uh, first Isaiah 31, the one that Jim read, note that God again and again and again had to caution his people to say, listen, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and who rely on horses and trust in chariots because they're many, and horsemen because they're very strong, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. God is bigger than the chariots, which was the most modern warfare, the the most modern innovation as far as war tech went during that day. And it would be comforting for the Israelites to say, we've got the Egyptians on our side, man, they've got horsemen, they've got chariots, they've got it all ready to go. God said, I want you to trust in me. You don't make alliances with the Egyptians. You don't make alliances with the north. A different passage, Jeremiah chapter 2. If you want to open up your Bible there, we'll come back to this passage here in just a moment as we talk about the next point. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 36 and 37. God says this, condemning Israel and the, uh, through the prophet Jeremiah. How much shall you go about changing your way? You shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. For it too, you will come away with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust. Speaking about Assyria, speaking about Egypt. And you will not prosper by them. Folks, God purposed the land of Israel as a land of contact. Where the people would be, in a lot of cases, set there in that land but to have contact with the outside world because God wanted a place not where they would be isolated, but where they would have to trust in Him. I'm mindful of the words of Jesus when He said to His disciples before it was that He was crucified, He said, I put you in the world. He said, don't be surprised if the world hates you because it's hated me first. And He would go on to say that you're in the world, but you're not of the world. Isn't that the supreme challenge of a Christian's life? That is that we have contact. God didn't say, church, I want you to dwell in this this autonomous commune to where you don't have any contact with the outside world. I want you to live like monks to where you, you shun the outside world and you don't have any contact whatsoever. Rather, what Jesus said is your salt, your light. You change the environment that you're about by your trust in God, by your refusal to compromise the things that you know to be true. God wanted us to be in contact with people. The question is: will we be that salt? Will we be that like? Will we be people that steadfastly trust the Lord no matter what? Point number two, why was land of Palestine a testing ground for these people's faith? It was because God purposed it as a land of goodness. It was a land of goodness. Would it surprise you to know that the land of Palestine has no natural resources? There's no vast mines of gold and no no vast deposits of oil down underneath this land. Everything that they have, they have primarily because of trade and trade routes that come in from Aram down uh, down to Egypt. They have and they've made their livelihood there in that land. But as God purposed it, the land of goodness, note this. It's not only between two political powers, Aram to the north, Egypt down to the south, but you have two competing climates. From the west, you have a humid climate coming off of the Mediterranean Sea. Great storms that would arise and that brings vast amounts of moisture from the west. But from the east, there would be the eastern desert, Saudi Arabia, Jordan. You would have a hot, arid climate that would be coming from the east. And God situates these people in the midst of these two vastly different climate types and god says listen you want your crops to grow you want your kids to not have to worry about famine you want uh, to have uh, always grapes on your vine you want to always have food you want to always have water exactly where it needs to be you need to trust in me you only have to look at deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29 to see that god uh, proposed blessings upon these people if it was that they would diligently obey him he said you know you'll never be in want and yet again and again and again, you find throughout books like Judges, throughout books like uh, the Kings, where it is that these people are suffering famines, where it is that they're suffering difficulty, and, and where it is that uh, one of the ladies in the, 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 the capital city said, you know what, we're going to boil and uh, kill and boil my kid tonight, and tomorrow we'll kill and boil your kid tomorrow night, and we'll have her for dinner. God never purposed that for his people. God said, if it was that you were just trusting in me, you would enjoy the goodness of this land. You might think of Israel, a lot of the ways that I thought about Israel, that it was just kind of dirty, that it was just kind of sandy, it's kind of grassy, kind of, uh, um, well, like a desert. When, in fact, you find that the truth that God said, that it was a land flowing with milk and honey, is absolutely true. When you find the hills and the, the the fertile valleys and things like that that are going, maybe you find some beauty like on the uh, coast of the Red Sea or on the coast of the uh, Dead Sea. And as you find this beauty and this natural wonder, you also find the provisions that God has made for his people, that it was it was a land flowing with milk and honey and God had promises these people because it was a good land. God, out of all the places in all the world, chose this especially for his people because it, he knew that it would be an opportunity for them not only to trust in him with regard to political forces, but also with regard to natural things. Speaking of that, in God's goodness, God made sure that there were ample water sources in this land. Just a couple of these things to talk about. There were natural springs that the people could rely on. Four different water sources that they had there in the land of Israel. They had natural springs that they could rely on. And it is that this spring water would come out of the side of a, a hill or a rock like this in a, a um, in a waterfall, and they could drink of this what they would call living water. This water that was not stale and stagnant and 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 had kind of a wang to it. Instead of that, they had this beautiful, pure, sparkling, refreshing water. Where they couldn't find a spring. They would dig down, they would dig wells, they would dig shafts down into the ground, such as this one over Gibeon. And as they would go, they would try and find that plateau where all the water was rushing down after it had been purified, and they would be able to go down in their wells and, and pull out this fresh, clean, sparkling water again. Later on, the Romans came up with an invention to move water from place to place. They would call it the aqueduct. And so they could move that fresh water to the places where they needed it. What you would find, however, also in certain parts of the land was this. These things that were just basically large plaster pots. And they would leave that pot maybe out in a field. Sometimes they would dig that pot down into the ground. And as the rain would come, it would be basically a rain collector. They would call these things cisterns. Now, can you imagine coming out to a cistern because it was that you were hot and you were uh, sweaty in the field and you drug that water down, but you knew that it hadn't rained for two or three days, maybe for a week or more. What kind of water would you get? Well, you get some of that nasty water, some of that stuff that, uh, you know, you ever leave a cup of water beside your bedside too often and you take a drink of it and it's just kind of, it's got that stale taste to it. You understand? What God wanted for his people, it's important to realize, is that God wanted them to trust in him as the fountain of living water. You're still there in Jeremiah chapter 2. Flip back to verse 13. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13. Again, God condemning Israel for not trusting in him for the goodness of the land. Note what God says to these people. He says, Jeremiah, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Again, think about that fresh, refreshing, nice, crystal clear, cold stream that's coming out that's already been purified. They've forsaken me, that's this fountain of living waters. And instead, they've hewn out for themselves. They've dug out these cisterns, these plaster pots. And they've done this for themselves. They're broken cisterns that can't hold any water. What these people have done spiritually was turn away from the goodness of God that had purchased them and bought them and brought them to this land. And instead what they did was they tried to craft their own religion and they tried to do their own things. And and as they did, God says, you're drinking out of an old, broken, nasty, probably mosquito-filled cistern. When you could have that, you could have me, the fountain of living waters. I'm mindful of Jesus as it was that he was sitting there by the well, speaking to the woman uh, of Samaria. And Jesus refers to himself and talks about him being the living water. He says, everybody who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I'll give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I'll give him shall become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. You see, God purposed us to enjoy his goodness to trust in his goodness. And the question is, are we? Or are we trying to drink from something that can never satisfy? Are we trying to satisfy ourselves with the old stale stagnant that this world has to offer instead of trusting in him and his goodness? God purposed it as a land of contact that he didn't make as an isolation. He purchased, uh, purposed us as a land of goodness. But number three, also a land of knowledge. A land of knowledge. God wanted his people to be knowledgeable about him. God wanted his people to have reminders of who he was. Remember the only tribe that didn't get any inheritance in the land of Israel, excuse me, any territorial inheritance. This is the tribe of Levi, I see a lot of you mouthing it. You understand what the Levites got instead? They got cities. They got a number of different cities all throughout the land of Israel. This was the best map that I could find. They had 48 Levitical cities all throughout the different tribes. You know what the purpose for these things were? You know what the purpose for these cities were? There were some of them, the ones with the red here that uh, just have the circle, were cities of refuge. That is, if you accidentally killed somebody in your field, and all of a sudden there's uh, that uh, near relative of that person, he comes chasing after you, you could flee to a city of refuge to where you could uh, hide out and you could stay there until, um, until the sabbatical year, until the, uh, the year of Jubilee. But the rest of these cities were primarily for the Levites to live So it would be that they would be spread out amongst people and help to give them an instruction about who God was. So that they could go and they could instruct people how to continue to be God's people. You remember one of the primary jobs of the Levites was that they were teachers of the law. They were responsible for teaching God's statutes and judgments. They were medical examiners. We could use a couple of these in this day and age. But how it was that if you thought that you had a leper spot, you could go to one of these cities and go visit a Levite and say, could you take a look at this? Could you see if this is leprosy? And he'd put you in quarantine for a period of time, and then he'd bring you back out and check and see if it spread. They would be those medical examiners. Those Levites served as arbiters. You got a disagreement with a fellow Israelite. You got a disagreement with somebody you can't get along. You come and you bring that case to the Levites so that they could help Determine what's right in the sight of God and determine who needs to pay. You see, God in his wisdom didn't want his people to dwell in isolation from who it was that he was. You remember that also, three times a year, back whenever it was that there was just a tabernacle that stayed at Shiloh. Tabernacle lived at Shiloh and later on David had the grand idea to move the uh, move the uh, the Tabernacle, excuse me, move the Ark of the Covenant on into Jerusalem. So it was that his Sol- son Solomon built the temple. God placed this area, this city, this one for the sacred pilgrimages three times a year so that all the Israelites, both north and south of there could come and could remember who God is. To have a day where they could Make a have a priest make atonement for their sin, where they could have time that they could remember what it was like to be in Egypt, where they could bring their first fruits to God. And it was that everything that God had done as far as the design went was to help these people to realize you're different. You're special as God's people, you're holy. And as God commands us, 1 Peter 1 verse 16, be holy for I am holy. Brothers and sisters, he's put us in a position where we are people that ought to be about knowledge, where we are people who have more resources and more opportunities to study God's word than probably any generation before us. And the question becomes, are we more knowledgeable about the culture we live in than we are about the God who is counter-cultural. The God who tells us, love your neighbor. The God that tells us, turn the other cheek when men uh, hurt you and when men take advantage of you. Are we more cultural or are we more godly? God purposed Israel as a land of knowledge. Last one this evening, number four. Uh, let, let me uh, do this one. Like I said, the slides up. This is uh, an image of Baal. One of the chief gods there of that land. He was the god of thunder, god of lightning, god of fertility. So it really was an assault on him whenever Elijah or, uh, um, stood on Mount Carmel and pronounced that, uh, pronounced that famine in the land. But note that they cast out, God cast out those other nations so that the Israelites would learn those other gods can't deliver. Moses said in Deuteronomy 20, verse 18, that they may not teach you to do according to their abominable practices for they've done against uh, their, their gods, so you sin against the Lord your God. God said, I want you as my people to be special. I want you as my people to be different, not to worship those gods that couldn't deliver these people. You worship me. Last one. It is a land of expectation. A land of expectation. Jerusalem became very, very important after, especially after... The seventy years of captivity. In a model in uh, Jerusalem today, you can go and look at this uh, the scale model that has a, a, a picture of what Jerusalem looked like in the time of Jesus. This is, of course, the Herodian Temple, the one that Herod expanded and uh, and was a forty-year building project, according to Jesus there in uh, in Matthew chapter forty-six years uh, there in Matthew chapter twenty-four. But as the people began to realize, Jerusalem was the place of the altar of God. Jerusalem was a place of God's house. Israelites began to associate Jerusalem, especially in a special way, with, well, them coming home. There was a nationalism about Jerusalem. There was a zeal for Jerusalem and for the things that made these people special in their relationship with God. And as it was, as time moved forward, and as Jerusalem became, later on in history, more important to the Muslims and the Armenians and others, now you've got this, this city that's vastly diverse. It's got a Jewish quarter, it's got an Armenian quarter, it's got a Muslim quarter, and all these different things. It's got a Christian quarter. And these people are playing claim to this one city. But what God had purposed for Jerusalem was special. That Jerusalem would be the launching point for the greatest movement in the history of the world. And that is Christianity. You're there in the prophets turn to Isaiah chapter 2 just for a moment. Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah gives this prophecy. And it's something that's worth our consideration. Isaiah says it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What Isaiah was prophesying about was a time where it was that people wouldn't have to go to Jerusalem anymore to go and worship. But rather from that place, there would come a knowledge of God that would spread to all the world and where it was that we could have the benefit of being people of God who wouldn't have to make yearly pilgrimages, who wouldn't have to go and offer animal sacrifices because the one that God had purposed and the one that we are to expect was the one that, outside the gates of Jerusalem, laid down His life for every single one of us. The one who with his own blood, paid the price so that, well, so that those animal sacrifices weren't necessary anymore. Not that they could take away the blood of bulls and goats, but they pointed to the fact that there was coming a Savior. We find the fulfillment here in Isaiah chapter 2 of Acts chapter 2. In the place of Jerusalem, on the day of Pentecost, there were Jews and, and uh, Jews from all nations under heaven that were gathered there. And upon that particular Pentecost, after Christ had, res- had been resurrected and ascended back into heaven, these people heard the very first gospel sermon. And they took from Jerusalem that message to all the nations of the world, of whom we sit now as beneficiaries 2,000 years later. And brothers and sisters, as God purposed the land of Israel as a land of expectation, Can you think of how many songs we sing just in our regular worship times that have an understanding that we are waiting for the new Jerusalem to be revealed from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband, Revelation 21, and how we sing, "Oh Zion, lovely Zion, speaking physically, if the Jews were singing, of the reference to the temple, what we're looking for is that spiritual realm. I long thy gates to see. O Zion, lovely Zion, when shall I dwell in thee? I'm bound for the promised land. I'm bound for the promised land. O who will come and go with me? I'm bound for the promised land. We sing, when i tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. And we think about the land of Israel being a land of expectation because it's what God promised. Folks, we have a much better city We have a heavenly city that's not made with hands, that we're anxiously looking forward. And as we think about this testing ground of faith for these people, the question comes back to us again, are we really looking forward to heaven? Are we really making our hope with God, with the revelation of Jesus Christ where we can go home and where we can be with Him? That's what God wants. And that's what we ought to want to. I hope this lesson has been helpful for you. We may do another geographic uh, lesson sometime. But for that this evening, I want you to understand God has purposed us as his people to make contact with others. Not to be changed by them, but to change them by the message of the gospel, by our character, by our conduct. God has purposed us for goodness doesn't mean that everything in this life is going to happen to us is good. However, God can bring about good no matter what it is that happens to us. God has purposed us as a people of knowledge. It used to be said that uh, if you didn't have a Bible present in the courtroom, you could bring a member of the Church of Christ and put your hand on their head and, and swear on them because they were like walking Bibles. That's what God wants for us, to be people who know His Word and who have applied it to our lives and who want to be nearer to His heart. God has purposed us as a people of expectation, looking up every morning, every chance we think about it, thinking today could be the day. If today was the day, if the day is the day that Christ comes back, are you ready? Are you ready to meet him? If not, why not? Let's stand and sing our invitation song.